All right, welcome to episode 25 of Trade Secrets. We are so excited to be here at the Wampum Underground with uh, a special guest, Alan Laganoff, who is uh, one of the owners of the Wampum Underground and the founder of Bellevue Street Capital. So welcome, Alan. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, yeah we're excited. Came in from Chicago to uh, be underground. So uh, let's start off. Also our first doubleheader, first podcast doubleheader today. Yes, two back-to-back. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for making it here. It's great. And it's a good view. I just realized this. We'll never do another podcast in our old office. That's correct, because we're moving well, in we less than a month. We didn't, well, send, we didn't do a good job of sending that off. <laughs> <laughs> but so Wampum Underground is where we're at today. And if you can tell, if you're watching, we are a little chilly. It's 55 degrees here every single day. Um, the only thing that changes is the humidity. But why don't you dig in and tell us about wampum and where we're at and why we're here sure so um wampum is obviously wampum underground is obviously a former limestone mine um you know they room and pillared it when they mined it so it created like a really unique kind of storage asset that over the last 30 40 years has really kind of grown into its own um wampum is really kind of two and a half million square feet you know 2.2 million of it is really usable um, about a million of it is improved, so this obviously would be what we considered improved. And then there's another million two of what we kind of just kind of dark cave um, with some lighting. Um, and I view it as kind of having three different businesses inside kind of one one and one asset, which is. And before you dig into those three, like just to give the um, guests some perspective, two and a half million square feet. Like Amazon builds the biggest boxes in the country, and those are a million square feet. And this is two and a half, so two and a half times that, and it's all underground. We're like 200 feet below the surface right now, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, so you, I mean, trucks, and we have semi trailers driving in here all day. So we're at grade level, and the kind of, you know, the mountain comes up behind us. So um, currently 200 feet underground, but, you know, you just walk outside and onto the road, and you're not like, people have the perception that you're kind of going down somewhere, which we're not. And two and a half million square feet is like, I think I did the math once, it's like 60 acres. I think it's even bigger than that. I think the surface acreage here is 300 some acres. Yeah, 320. We don't encompass, it's not underground. Right, and we lose some space because of the columns. People don't realize, like, we always say former limestone mine. It still is a limestone mine. It's held up by columns that you can see behind us that are approximately 30 feet in diameter. Yeah. Because um, if you took those columns out, then there wouldn't be a mine anymore. Well, it yeah. would just cave in. So <laughs> anyways, I just great thought. Well, it's yeah. a lot more sturdy than any surface building. Right. You know, like this will still be here when a lot of the guys, the stuff that was built on above ground kind of has already decayed or not been maintained well enough. This is... And when you bought it, that was one of the funniest things for me, um, having represented the people who owned it before you. Um, you wanted to do a lot of due diligence around the structure and the environmental, like, is this going to be here 100 years from now? And it's like, as the seller, they were like, it's been here for 100 years. What possibly could happen? But as the buyer, who is totally unknown, never bought anything underground before, you're like, well, is it going to be here? Like, yeah. Or is it going to cave? I mean, looking back on it, do you still think that that's like... A funny or are you glad that you spent you know lots of money digesting that <laughs> no I mean no I'm I think we we needed to spend the money digesting it we needed to get comfortable we needed to make sure our, our investors would also never heard about something like this to get comfortable um, I mean now you know it's been two and a half years now it's I, I, I'm not that comfortable because every time I tell the story people are like wait and and I'm and I have to like rethink through it and resell it I'm like yeah no it's fine and and it's actually much more secure than it, than than above surface mine, and so it keeps it fresh in my mind that like I had to go through that process, sure, and not like be complacent about it. But but now it's it's, I mean, I think it's actually quite unique and has a ton of advantages. Yeah, and like so, since we've been working on um, on this project, I have learned a ton of things about limestone mines that I never in my whole life thought I would come to have that knowledge um, but I'm sure you have gotten some really interesting questions or found out some really interesting things about subterranean uh, real estate so can you is there anything that stands out in your mind is like something an investor asked you where you're like that sounds bonkers but then you start doing like some digging and you're like oh that was actually a 
legit question, and there's an interesting answer. Yeah, I mean, we've had we've had people. You know, I think the most obvious one is people are always are like, well, it's colder, so can you do data storage? Um, and and you have seen in other limestone mines around the country create data storage. I think this for this particular asset in this location, it doesn't quite work. Um, you know, the one thing you have to worry about, you have to think about is obviously what what's your power costs and um, what's your clear height and can you make it efficient enough? Mm -hmm. um, do you have enough water and, um, to sustain uh, like the cooling and heating system? And so we've looked at things like that, um, but haven't gone too far from kind of just increase, you know, creating better efficiencies, create some marketing that wasn't really being done before, um, re, you know, restructuring the organization, pricing models, and how we're dealing with customers, and, and kind of operated a little bit more of an institutional level than it maybe was previously. And that's a good segue back to where I interrupted you. There's like three things going on here, yeah. right? Yeah. So inside this two and a half million square feet, we're sitting in a brand new warehouse. It's 55,000 square feet. Somebody could lease this. It's got docks office, restrooms, I mean, effectively, we've got a 55,000 square foot building underground that somebody could lease tomorrow, Yeah. right? But talk about what are the three components of the wampum underground? Sure, yeah, okay, so um, of the million square feet that's kind of built out that looks like this, half of that is leased, you know, like to tenants on leases, like any normal above ground multi-tenant building. So just like an industrial park anywhere in America. Yeah, exactly. You know, multiple tenant industrial park, big building that's just kind of broken up. Docks, yeah. parking, offices, exactly. the whole nine yards. Exactly. We have, you know, there's dozens of people that roads. come and work here. <laughs> we have roads. 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 It's almost like, you know, just an underground roadway network that has its own warehouses as you go through it, like, a, like an industrial park, yep. um, almost like a multi-building industrial park. Um, so that's like, call it 500,000 square feet. Then there's another 500,000 of improved, which is at the moment this fluctuates, but like call it 300,000 of our own, we, we operate our own 3PL business. Where What's we, 3PL stand for? So I third, get that question all the time because really? I use it and people are like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, so it's like third party logistics. I think what we do, we maybe, you know, people who are really in that space would call it more like warehousing, okay. where we have customers, you know, it's not like tenants, they're, they're customers, and we basically make sure we have enough space for them, and they say, hey, I'm bringing in stuff to store, and we have staff and guys who are, you know, taking, we're not doing any of the trucking, but we're, our guys are unloading and we're storing stuff for them. We have some added on services on top of it, but people, customers that like obviously the humidity and climate control nature of, of our space and that, hey, I need to, uh, this isn't like a freight forwarding. It's not gonna sit here for six hours. It's, it's gonna sit here for six weeks or maybe even six months. Um, and it makes more sense for me to find something a little bit more economical to store something longer term. You're like and the overflow valve, right? For some people, yes. Yeah. For some people, you know, we have some customers that, you know, their, their volume of needs fluctuates dramatically. And so our value add is that, hey, we can take on thousands of pallets normally on, and, you know, part of the reason we, we did this expansion is to continue to have that flexibility for our customers. Um, and so we could flex up or flex down, and they really like that. And so they're not, some of them are not committing to, hey, I'm committing to 50,000 square feet for 10 years. It's, I need a little bit more flexibility. We've had customers transition some of their divisions, if they have multiple divisions, some of them have realized, hey, I'm, I'm using this all the time. It makes sense to make this more economical. I'm gonna commit to lease space or commit to pay it like a minimum number of pallets each month gives us some more surety in our side of the cash flows sure. and allows us to pass with that on to the efficiency for uh, and pricing for the, 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 the customers. Um, and, and so that's yeah. plus or minus how many uh, pallets are there at any given time here that are not in somebody's private warehouse. These are just the ones that the Wampum team yeah. is managing. Pallets, yeah, 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 yeah. So we have over like 10,000 pallets at a time. You know? Which is incredible. Yeah, no, I mean, it's 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 crazy to think about. It is crazy to think about. Do you, what's like a square footage for that? I mean, you can probably stack what three pallets high here, so or two. Or yeah, two. some of them can. I mean, it depends on the customer. Um, some of them have product that they allow to stack, and some that don't. And most of what's in this facility is not stacked, correct? Um, I think because you have such economy of yes. you have so much uh, floor space 
that it's not like you're paying 10 bucks a square foot for a warehouse where right. you're trying to take advantage of the cubic volume exactly. here it's like exactly. just spread it out and make it easier to pick up yeah and 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 honestly some of the tenants that we have are you know i don't want to pay for 30 foot warehouse because i'm actually i i'm more of assembly or i need more floor space i don't necessarily need a rack that much and right. so this works out really well for them because they both get the efficiency of our pricing um structure and and they're not paying for the volume which they're not using anyway and you know, you and mentioned what's the final, really, oh, before we go on, what's the third business line in here? Yeah, so, so there's the real estate, there's the 3PL, and then we'll just wrap that up because I yeah, feel like that so, has been an ongoing thought. <laughs> that we've been on, on, see if we can make it last the whole podcast. I mean, I'm the ADHD one here, people. If I'm bringing us back around, that's a problem. Yeah, so so um, of the 500,000 remaining outside, that's not least 300, I call it, is, is 3PL. 200 is what we call climate control vehicle storage. Um, and then the other 1.2 million is vehicle storage that's not inside a climate-controlled warehouse. So that, that is climate-controlled, just not humidity-controlled. So we have vehicles, seasonal vehicle storage it's there. Temperature-controlled. Yeah, temperature-controlled, but not, but not climate-controlled. So right. um, from like kind of September, October, November, we, we have kind of a couple thousand boats, RVs, cars coming in and, you know, they're getting off the RV uh, you know, resorts or the lakes, right, they're coming the and they want to, and they want to store it somewhere and, you know, they want to store it inside during the winter. So we, we take those, they move in and then call it March through May. Um, they're coming out and, you know, the humidity level starts to, to rise in our unimproved warehouse. So it's best that they, they, they vacate. And One of the things that's most amazing about being in this facility is the enormity of it. When you come into the facility, you, you're driving with 18-wheel trucks that are passing you back and forth. You said 10,000 pallets, huge warehouse spaces, thousands of cars and vehicles and RVs. Yeah. It's like a traffic jam. <laughs> yeah. There's so much activity that's going on here, and it's all subgrade. You it's, drive by it on the road, and it doesn't exist. It's an amazing logistics. We actually just had a tour here uh, with uh, economic development um, executives from across the region a couple weeks ago, and one of the gentlemen has driven past the Wampum Underground for 30 years, and he came on the tour only because he was like, I never knew what was inside there. It's fascinating. He was blown away, and that, you know, it's one of the challenges of yeah. owning an underground mine, right, is that nobody really knows that it right. exists because you don't drive past it and say, wow, look at that big building. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right? Exactly. And it's so unique. There's actually been three movies that have been filmed here, is that correct? I think I know of two. There's, I think there's two Dawn of the Deads. Oh, I thought there. it was just one. Just the one? Okay. okay. And then there was another one that... Uh, the, last the, the, <laughs> the Last Vampire Hunter. The Last Vampire Hunter. The Last Vampire. I think that won some awards, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm, un I'm unaware. I'm unaware. Maybe. Critically um, acclaimed. <laughs> uh, I did see the movie before we, I got involved. Okay. And somehow someone told me about oh, that. And I was like... I, I, I know which scenes, like, and now it clicked, and uh, I don't know, it's just funny. So you just mentioned before you got involved, you get a phone call in May of 2020, hey, there's this underground building that's got these three businesses. Immediately you were like, I want to do this. Like, talk us through the mindset of, yeah. I'm intrigued, I want to do this, and then, oh, by the way, I've got to raise a whole bunch of money to make it happen. Yeah, um, well, I mean, you called me, and it was, yeah, it was May, maybe early June 2020, and uh, you kind of described it to me, I think even before you said it was an underground line, so you were just kind of describing the businesses to me, and it sounded really intriguing to me, and there was scale to it. Um, and I happened to, like, my career in real estate has always not been super focused. It hasn't been like, all I do is multifamily value add or all I do is, you know, flex industrial. It's never been that way. I've always kind of done multiple projects in multiple regions. We're gonna come back to that here in a second for sure. Yeah, so like, it was never like, I don't, that's not what I do. It was like, how can I, how does this make sense? How can I make it make sense? Um, and it seemed really intriguing. Um, and obviously like, you know, there's a whole operating business component here too that we can get into that, you know, I've never been involved in, but, you know, once you dig in and try to 
categorize the risks in different buckets and try to, you know, underwrite and forecast and, you know, lever correctly to, to kind of make sure you're not, you're protected on the downside. And that, that was, I don't know, it was, it was, it was interesting. I, I was intrigued right away. Uh, you know, you guys had Scott on the podcast. I, I called Scott. I knew he was flying in, in June 2020 as I was. And uh, I was like, I need you on a plane in two days. <laughs> and I'll tell you why <laughs> later. But I'll tell you why. Buy tickets. I'll tell you when we get there. Buy tickets. <laughs> well, it is wild. I mean, it's the first time in my career that I left a, we'll call it a pitch, um, when I was getting interviewed to potentially sell it on behalf of the former owners. And I remember saying to you, if I don't get hired, we need to buy this. Yeah. Like, yeah, you, you called me a year before that. Like, it was 20, be a year before 2020. Right. And I remember where I was, and you were describing this to me, and like in abstract. Like, so I had no idea what, like, I had no idea it was underground. I was I had keeping no, my NDA good. Right. I, like, exactly. you were just like, this is interesting. Like, this would be really cool. And, and I was like, sounds amazing. So, like, I had this in the back of my mind as something that you were, you know, was out there and uh so when you called me i just jumped at it yeah it's pretty wild um you mentioned not being in a lane right so talk to us about that i know it's something that Paige, you know now four years in the business has questioned not just like internally but externally gets questions about being a generalist versus being in the lane and in the real estate business there's a lot of people who are like, I only do landlord representation in industrial product in Western Pennsylvania. I only do master brokerage work retail nationally. Like yeah. you mentioned very directly, like you were never in a specific lane. Talk to us about that. And even like how you went from finance to real estate. Like Yeah, so so I I started off like my career started in basically when this great financial a recession when the world was kind of blowing up and I happened to be so working. 08, 09. Yeah, oh, like 9, 10 when the CM, and I went to go work for CMBS Special Servicer. So like, you know, I saw oh God, all the I blocks. I wish I could go back to those days knowing what I know today and like relive those periods. <laughs> so I was just seeing like, I was just seeing loans that were underwritten where people were just losing, you know, and it was all the asset classes. I saw all the people that bought, you know, the office properties from Blackstone that had just closed on it from from you know Sam Zell's EOP and rest in peace. Yeah, yes. just what you know. Unfortunately, that that news broke yesterday. Um, and and it was all the different asset classes and 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 then from there, um, I was kind of recruited back to Chicago and uh, and for like a basically a capital raising shop as an investment bank that all they did was raise money for you know, really big institutional type operators. So you went from bureaucratic lender servicing to now we're going to go and it was raise sm- capital. Right. It was small. It was, so that was probably, so I think literally every time I've switched companies, it's been smaller and smaller and smaller. But you said lender special servicing, correct? Yeah. The, so the troubled assets. Yeah. So the, you know, it was actually kind of like a hedge fund with the special servicing. So we were both working on the special servicing and our work was leading up to, you know, them investing capital in the tranches of okay. CBS. Went from there to raising, uh, helping raise, raise capital for, for institutional type op, real estate operators. They had, uh, like they call the fund of funds business, which was basically incubating platforms and, and teams in, with a specific strategy and funneling capital to them. Um, I felt like I was a little too far away from the deals, like being a deal guy. Um, and Scott, like I told that to Scott, and Scott had just started his own firm, but it was moonlighting and helping a different group that had just taken down a big REIT through bankruptcy, and he's like, they're looking for a guy. And so I went to go work there, and I was there for seven years. Okay. And, you know, we were digesting this REIT that they just bought that had a really interesting financing structure. Um, and, you know, we did a bunch of different stuff. I was doing JV deals with, with Scott, buying, you know, flex industrial shopping centers. While I was there, we built a senior housing development platform because we really liked that space, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, we did a huge land assemblage in Florida. And that portfolio was massive, like billions of dollars, correct? Um, it was like, a f- I think the headline number was 550 million. Okay. Yeah, and so, you know, 
that was really interesting in that you were basically buying a, a portfolio of single asset, GSA uh, leased, build a, first generation build to suit assets. You were buying like a weighted average lease term of like four on a portfolio basis and you're extending the leases individually and then you know getting cap rate compression and selling them off one at a time. So that was really kind of my introduction to kind of the single tenant, um, the way to create you know value add returns in the single tenant world. Um, and you know we did a bunch of different other things and, and to their credit you know they just let me kind of do, like I was working on that stuff but they let me go do business development and other stuff and I was like in 2015 I was looking at like frac sand and like a bunch of different other stuff and they gave me that real flexibility so I never felt like I was limited to Boy. any kind of asset class and and then I kind of started gravitating and in the back of my head you know like we thought senior housing was interesting but in the back of my head I'm like how would I ever do this on my own like in the back of my head I'm always thinking like how like if I left and I wanted to go do this and because I've always wanted to kind of do my own thing, like it, this, there's too many players, you know, it's construction financing that's really hard to get, you know, it's a big development project so you need a lot of capital even before you get to close and it was just at long timelines and, and it, it just didn't, the way I like to think about risk, it just didn't match up with my temperament really and, and so then I started switching into what I thought was more interesting like kind of single tenant niche opportunities, um, but that, but they were really kind of smaller deals. And, you know, for, for where I was working, it didn't really work. So, you know, that's kind of... Because they wanted to put more capital to work. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, to their credit, you know, like every time you do a deal, there's reputational risk. And if I'm going to put reputational risk, it needs to move the needle. And at and, and that firm, it was just, it, it just didn't make sense. And, you know, we were building a senior housing development company that, you know, had hundreds of million dollar pipeline, it didn't make sense for me to go do five or six, six or $10 million, million dollar. $10 million deal. It just didn't, it didn't really align with, with, with the direction. But, you know, they gave me the flexibility to, to do it for a while. And, you know, when I off on my own, I, I got lucky in that I was working on a deal that I was basically able to leave with. Like, we negotiated exit and I was able to start, to start Bellevue with a, you know, a really interesting deal that was heavily structure driven, which okay. is kind of like the way I like to think about real estate. Yeah, you love the structure and the model. Um, Alyssa <laughs> on our team said she wants to sit through a modeling session with you. I was like, no, you don't. <laughs> you, you <laughs> Your brain don't. will explode. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, there's so many different places I want to go and we have such limited time. But um, before Bellevue and just because we're on the modeling topic, uh, you said something to me yesterday that really blew my mind, and it has to be a part of this podcast. You didn't know Excel until you were in college. Yeah. And now I would argue you're an Excel wizard. And I, I know you're going to be self-deprecating and say no, whatever. But I, I work with lots of people, see lots of spreadsheets. You're fantastic at it. But then I obviously am a father of a few young kids. And, like, they're doing Excel in grade school now. Yeah. And so... You're now in a finance position, obviously an Excel wizard. They're learning it before you even knew it existed. And now I'm curious, like, the next wave of kids, if they'll even know what Excel is. Like, I, right. because of everything that's happening in AI. So maybe that's just a statement rather than a question, but I think it's fascinating that you didn't know yeah. Excel till college. Well, I mean, my comment on that is, <clears throat> so I worked at a, really at an investment bank where people really knew Excel. And, and, but I've gone kind of downstream to sub-institutional asset classes and I feel like my Excel abilities and modeling abilities and thinking of structures, like my competitive advantage in these sub, sub kind of institutional size deals. So you're um, bringing the institutional level. I, I like to think that like, hey, I have this a little bit more of an institutional kind of background that I'm bringing to smaller, um, smaller asset classes and then just like layering on like putting on the risk, the risk on the table. Sure. So um, when you say sub-institutional asset class, what are the criteria for that? Like what are the boxes that, is it just a dollar value? Is it the tenant mix, the risk? Like what really qualifies question. something as a sub-institutional? Um, I would say it's the dollar size and I would say the, the, the credit profile of the tenants um, would, I, I think, Unless, you know, if this institutional type capital partner was trying to put 
to invest in this space, they wouldn't be able to do it directly. They would need to invest it through some sort of platform or some sort of you know, investment manager that had expertise. So they would be removed, like at least one step removed, just because you know, we're talking about you know, sub $10 million, sometimes sub $5 million type deals. Um, and if they're really wanting to put a lot of capital out the door, um, you know, they, they wouldn't be able to do it directly because it just wouldn't move the needle. And if they're, you know, the credit profile a lot of, sometimes are really mom and pop. And, and the way I think about some of the, a lot of what we do outside of Wampum is like really single tenant type related risk. And so sometimes you're a real estate first investor and you're like, I'm buying really good real estate and I can take the risk on the, on the credit, the mom and pop, because I like the real estate and I know if they go out of business, I can Digital replace, replace the, the lease with somebody else. And sometimes you're playing your credit game. You're like, this isn't necessarily the best real estate, but there's much better credit here. And maybe the pricing is off because the real estate's not good or, or the location's not good. And, and, and institutional investors are just not looking at that location. Um, so you kind of, I think being able to play both sides is, is part of the competitive advantage. And, you know, it strikes me interesting that we're talking about five or $10 million deals as not being institutional, but there's clearly a large segment of the population in our audience who a five or $10 million deal seems totally untouchable. We're talking about it like it's Monopoly, which is kind of fascinating. So, you know, even before Bellevue, before the REIT, uh, before the, um, the special servicer, like, talk about where your background's from, where you grew up. Like, was it always that a 5 or $10 million deal was no big deal? Like, like I think it's... <laughs> no, uh, definitely not. As we sit here we're and we're saying it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like... I'm super polished. This has been my whole life. My whole life is uh, no. So but that's the fascinating thing. There's nobody at this table who grew up where that was like a norm. So right. I'm curious, like, about the background and how you got where we're at today. Yeah, I mean, so I was born in Ukraine. Uh, I was born in Kiev, and we immigrated as a family when I was three years old. And if you're not paying attention out there, there's some shit going on in yeah. that part of the world right now. Yeah, yeah part of the reason we wanted to, to leave was, first of all, we didn't, you know, didn't like communism. It was a communist country, part of the Soviet Union back then. And also just the unstable nature of the politics, the people there. Hasn't and changed much. <laughs> I think my, my, when my dad says when we were leaving, when we were immigrating, he's like, you know, eventually you will see tanks on the streets here. And he was totally right. And that was what Really? Year? 89. Yeah. 89. Yeah. So how old were you? I was three. <sighs> yeah. Wild. So, I mean, they were considered educated people earning. My dad was fairly entrepreneurial for the time, right? He was taking advantage of some of the openness that was happening. So they were, you know, pretty probably upper middle class for that, which in that environment doesn't mean much, like from an American perspective. But when they immigrated here, you know, like, you know, we were living in my aunt's basement. You know, my parents were, you know, delivering pizza and, and washing windows while they were trying to go to school and get jobs. And it, 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 I don't mean to interrupt, but it, historically, the wall didn't fall till 92, correct? Yeah, yeah, 91, 92. I mean, at one point, my dad wanted to go back. He's like, there's so much opportunity. And my mom's like, absolutely not. Yeah. You know? And that was the right decision, too. And, you know, um, so. Uh, and then, but, like, I think they always had this mentality that, like, hey, we, we're in America. Like, we can... We could do anything here, and like they really instilled this mentality: you could do anything here. There is no ceiling, and and you know they changed careers multiple times and tried to see you know, and they would help each other if one was taking more risk or the other. You know, my mom went to nursing school, and my dad was doing this, and then my mom was established so that he could take more risk and do something else, and it was just slowly building. Um, you know, became an insurance salesman. You know. And then, you know, they got into the mortgage business. So that kind of started the, our, you know, my exposure to kind of finance. Okay. Um, and, you know, then, you know, there's like buying houses here and there. And, and so I kind of went from a 10 years old thinking I was going to be a doctor um, to like, I, you know, I actually like finance and, and business more. And I remember, you know, my dad day trading in like the, the late 90s or in early 2000s and then think and then seeing like what happened there thinking like okay 
I don't like <laughs> I don't like having no control <laughs> about like what's going on. It seems you know, and then and the exposure to real estate and finance that that's really kind of where it took my path. And you know, my exposure was residential real estate, and until I kind of really went to college and like learned about commercial, that really kind of put me on a different different path. When you, where you went to school was there. A call, an education component on commercial real estate? That's not the, something that you see courses for in yeah, or the, areas of study in most colleges? There, there, was a, there was a finance with a concentration in, in real estate. Hmm. So there were a few courses. There was a real estate club that had speakers come to town um, and you know, there was one speaker who was like, hey, I'm part of this organization. There's a lot of mentors that you could do do- job shadowing on and I was, I was like, well, this is amazing. And so I would go like almost every Friday, uh, like drive two hours to Chicago, do a day. And that's actually where I met Scott my freshman year of college, um, who we're now partners with on the Wampum Underground. Think about was, that. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so met Scott there. He helped me get, you know, like he connected me to that, that second, that the private equity job that I worked at, um, that we did deals together with. And then you know, I called him on this, and and now we're partners on this. Um, on so, a significant asset, I mean, tens of millions of dollars. Like, yeah. And you met because you were in college, and said, "I'm going to drive two hours to go take advantage of a mentoring opportunity." Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, and it awesome. it just it evolved. I mean, yeah. So it was there was I was doing you know big deals at shop and doing small deals and like really seeing what the capital raise was like and you know you know we did a couple of smaller deals and then it just kind of like okay now we we have some trust with investors we can you know rinse and repeat and kind of snowball it and Scott had a track a longer track record than I in 2020 um, that helped us helped help convince some new investors to come in and you know it's worked out since um, you made a comment kind of in passing, but I think there's something there. You said from an American perspective, right? Yeah. So, you know, your parents, who I haven't had the pleasure to meet, um, but they clearly were entrepreneurs, and it didn't matter where they lived. They just were entrepreneurs, but they weren't going to be entrepreneurs successfully there, but then they came to America and everything changed. Yeah, I mean, I think my dad was kind of entrepreneurial there. Um, you know, he he was considered doing black market stuff because he was selling blue jeans on the street. <laughs> and, you know, like selling, like doing business was black market. Um, and so he was always kind of on the edge, maybe a little bit of that. So he had that mentality and definitely just felt like he could do it here. Um, and But they did it very, like, slowly and methodically. Like one person was taking more risk while the other one was the stable, more stable and kind of worked off of each other and it just kind of, you know, lived below their means, saved, created capital bases and just, and, um, you know, that really snowballed and they happened to be in the right industry in the mortgage industry for the last 20 years, so that helped too. And, you know, one was more current income, one was more, you know, investing and kind of going back and forth and, and made m- mistakes for sure, you know, like the, we, my first commercial exposure was my dad working on a shopping center deal that someone brought him and, you know, relied on somebody else's kind of assessment of it and they partnered and, and that didn't work out, but like, you know, get up and keep going. Um, and, and that really, you know, taught me personally know what, know what you're investing in and really do the diligence and don't rely on somebody else's underwriting or, or assessment of it. Um, and, you know, managing risk, you know, that was not, not any one deal should be able to take you down. Right. And, and, and really protect the downside. So, so when you are approaching, I remember, I think one of, I joined Totem in 2020 shortly before, um, we were engaged to represent the previous owners to sell Wampum, um, and one of my first exposures to you was Kevin had sent you the OM and within like three hours, we had like an eight paragraph email of questions <laughs> from your analysts. It's the best analysis. And it was Ask like, ever. It, so I'm curious because I know that 
the attention to detail that you pay to these things when you're analyzing? Do you have a process that you follow every time? Or like, how do you determine on something as complex as this um, where you're going to start? That's a good question. And like, what, what's your process when evaluating? Thank you for remembering that, first of all. Um, yeah, I was so, blown away. I was like, oh, okay, Rain yeah. Man. <laughs> I was like, this is wild. I think every banker we talk to now is like, okay, Rain Man. <laughs> it was impressive. Well, so, I knew nothing then, but I knew enough to know, like, that's, that's some serious brain power behind that email. Um, well, okay, so I think the working at an investment bank tra trains you how to work, like, to, like, really work. Um, I wasn't there very long, but, like, you you understand like what it means to like put in the hours and and get your stuff done and i think that's part of like part of the the not just the analysis but part of the reception to the to the broker who's representing and has the trust of the seller and to the seller like you're taking this really seriously and that when when i know you're putting in an offer i know that like i want to be the one that like they've done the most diligence they understand the asset the most so like if they Maybe like they're not the highest bid, or but like they, I know that they're like. There's a lot less surprises with 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 their bid than anybody else. Yeah. And yeah, and I, I, I mean, I think you have to understand it right away. I mean, as as much as you can, right? Especially for something like this, you just just. Even if you don't understand it, you always have to ask the next question. And literally, you never run out of questions. Yeah. Still you know, and the more information that you get, the better it's going to be. And like you said, they're going to feel more comfortable. This guy's going to go through with this transaction yeah. because he pretty much gets where I am. Yeah. And downstream, there'll be less hiccups. Yeah. So in understanding, I mean, obviously there are some names on the tenant roster that are household. You understand the the credit backing that tenancy but some of the like what kind of diligence did you do into each specific tenant for the real estate what kind of research did you do into third-party logistics did you do research into um you know the boat and rv storage like is that all did you essentially learn all of those businesses and about all the tenants prior to deciding like what kind of risk assessment you were making on this um because I think we eventually want to segue into how um, tenants' credit can impact the value of an asset. Yeah. So how deep of a dive do you do into the tendencies of assets you're required? Uh, yeah, no, requiring? so this was... So one of the things I learned on the investment too was you, you want to build your models from scratch, right? And this... And the reason, and I like to do it, like I don't really have much of a team, so it's like me doing it, and it really helps you understand the asset, especially for this, which has so many moving parts. And in building the model, you come up with questions like, well, how does pricing change over time? Or exactly how are you collecting revenue, and when does it collect collected, and how is your pricing structure different? And like there's seasonality in some of the like vehicles, there's seasonality, like how are you, if you take the last three months, does that really represent what the income is? And so, like, building the model forces the question. Yeah, because you have to think through it. It forces you to think through how... To put it into the... Yeah, like, how, how to do, put the information in. Exactly. Like, how should I think about the cash flows going forward? And is the historical or, or these few months of data really relevant? Do I need more? Um, so here, there wasn't a lot of lease term on the leases. Like, you know, previous ownership was just... Yeah, like a couple of years here and there and so like you looked at it and you're like oh my god I'm going to renew all these leases hopefully in the next 12 months and we right. actually did some while we were under contract because they were coming up so so you have the risk that there's no lease you know there's no way to average lease term term but a lot of the tenants here have been here a long time so it gives you a little bit of credit that like hey they've been here 10 plus years they've been on this like rolling two three year periods of leases and so that gives the historical nature of the stickiness of the tenant gives you credit even though you don't necessarily have term um, and then you have other businesses that have their own different risks, and when you kind of combine them together, you kind of get a little bit of stability. So the vehicle storage business, obviously they come in and out every year, so the, but you know, when we were doing diligence, there's you know, three, 400 people on the waiting list to get in here. Right. Um, so you're like, okay, so clearly there's a stickiness here. Clearly there's probably pricing power for us to, to push rents here, and, and it seems like a really secure part of the cash flows. And then 
the most unique one was the logistics business because like that's truly an operating business. It's not like real estate at all. It's right. almost like you know, it's almost it's like a hotel because people are coming in and out constantly. Person. You don't know what you know next week's demand is going to be or two months' demand is going to be. So we got lucky, I think, in just the way this laid out, the structure laid out. The logistics business was the smallest part of of the three was the smallest of the three businesses. Um, I was able to work with the seller to get enough historical data um, for the different clients and over years that I could come up with a number. I'm like, hey, there's volatility, but if I base this here sure. and we finance off of these numbers, that we should be okay even if there are dips. Even if there's valleys. And, and so like that was really helpful and then the other kind of what I would call like arbitrage was we financed the whole thing like a real estate deal. So even though there was like this operating business component, we and the bank was willing to look at it like, hey, we, we, this has been here a long time. We understand how you're looking at the revenue stream. We'll count it as like real estate revenue just like the other revenue. Because at one point you even asked the, the sellers to sign a lease on that operating business yeah. to help de-risk the yeah. situation. Yeah, right? yeah, because I think if anybody would have looked, if, an, if a traditional private equity firm that buys operating companies would have looked at this and then looked at like maybe the multiple we were paying, they would have been like, that makes no sense. Like, this is kind of a sub-institutional size operating business. We With wouldn't, huge peaks and valleys, yeah. Right, like we wouldn't pay that multiple. And then the real estate guy would look at it and say, well, first of all, this isn't real estate. I don't, I don't get it. Either. I don't understand it. I don't it. understand it. Or they would say, that's a pretty good cap rate. You know, like if they were looking at it from from a, a comp perspective on yeah. a cap rate, it, yeah. yeah, doesn't make any sense. Exactly. So it was kind of you were in this like gray area, and then so I think that's where there was a little bit of value arbitrage, and then the, there was financing arbitrage on top of it. And when you say the bank looked at it like a real estate deal, what? What would change if they looked at it as uh, an operating company with a with real estate? Like, what's the difference? Well, I think you know they were. I think the most pressing difference would be the amortization period. So we were able to get a full loan that amortized over twenty five years, like, like a, a real estate like a re, like a real estate deal. Okay. So your debt constant was much lower. You weren't paying down as much debt, so we could have a really decent current return for investors, right. which helped us raise the capital. Yeah, and if you were going to it, borrow money on an operating company, you could never get 25-year <coughs> amortization because the bank's like, I have no idea if this business will be here in 25 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it did affect how much they valued that as far as the loan value, exactly. the loan yeah. amount. Yeah. Um, how did you... I thought we didn't like overly... Le like, yeah. If it was a real estate deal, people were like, you, you know, this is quite lowly levered. So. Yeah. How did you balance out the volatility of the 3PL business? Did you underwrite it to a certain point, high watermark, low watermark? Yeah, so when we were buying it during COVID, the, the, logistics, the logistics business, the 3PL business is, is almost counter-cyclical because when, the, when the, the economy slows down, inventories build up uh -huh. because their, their throughput slows down. So they all of a sudden they have more inventory and actually demand for our storage goes up. Because they're, you know, maybe they don't have enough space in their current, their, their owned warehouse. And they're and not going to put any CapEx into a new warehouse. Right. So they're like, oh my God, I, I need overflow. So when we were during COVID, that 2020, the inventories were growing really rapidly. And the logistics business was actually like almost peak revenue. And I'm like, I can't underwrite because <laughs> literally five months ago, you were at like the lowest revenue uh -huh. that you had in like five years. Right. So... You know, I can't forecast that out. So that's why I kept, I mean, Kevin remembers, I kept, and you guys remember, like, I kept asking for more historical data, more historical data, more historical data, because then I was like, okay, what is the last five years of this you look, business? You went back five years? I went back five years. I'm like, and I went back, not just by five years, but I went back by customer to see wow. the volatility in the customers and what the customer concentration looked like. So there was also customer concentration risk, too. Because it was like historically reliant on just one or two relationships, that relationships that were like the yeah. majority of the of the revenue for the logistics business. So, looking at that and benching off 
benchmarking off of the, those five years of data is what I, like how I underwrote it, not looking at the, the current revenue. No, absolutely. Suffice <laughs> to say, devil's in the details, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's not just number. It sounds to me like, you know, you're not, you, you build the model for the asset, but it's still not just numbers. Like there is, yeah. there's not a formula that makes it make sense. There's right. additional understanding. And I'm, I'm curious if, if you hadn't had the intimate knowledge of all these things when you went to the bank to be able to explain X, Y, and Z, if any, if they would have lended to a deal like this to someone who had a lesser level of detail. Oh, no, no. They would like, not Like, did you have. paint the picture? <laughs> they, they would definitely No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> Kevin knows the details. Um, the, the bank was... Uh, the bank was looking for us to be very knowledgeable about the asset and, then, and were impressed that we had gotten up to speed so fast. Um, and that got them comfortable. So that, that was one of the ongoing risks throughout the deal was um, will we actually get the financing. And I think that's something that I've witnessed over the career now is that banks are definitely going to pay attention to the books and the finances and the numbers, but they're also really, really motivated to understand who the sponsor is and does the sponsor understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. Like, it's very subjective, but I think it's really a strong piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I mean, yes, definitely. I mean, we had no track record in, in owning underground space um, or really like quasi-operating businesses. So um, uh, it was it was really important to them. Um, we obviously like Scott, you know Scott's company had a, like you know hundreds of tenants at that point, um, so that was helpful. Um, and you know they had a team that they were managing, and that was just one guy that, you know, putting it, putting it all together. Um, and so that was definitely a lift. I, you know, it, Sam Zell, as someone sent me a text this morning, because it's so fresh in people's minds, um, there's a quote from him saying, uh, and I sent it to you today. I loved it. Um, uh, I'm going to get it. I'm going to butcher it. But, you know, entrepreneurship is doing something you didn't really think you could do. Or yeah. something to that effect and I like that like hit me I was like this is the perfect example of that like who would have thought that I and then not knowing to... that you couldn't do it like then, that yeah, yeah, yeah that's it, like the other piece of the exactly, puzzle right exactly so this was like this is like a, this deal is like a perfect example of that yeah it's like you, not knowing what you don't know actually is a benefit yeah in some regards so um obviously this is an incredible space it's exciting that you now have built some more warehouse and he did hint that they were going to fill it up with 3PL pallets. I don't know if you heard that. I but. heard that, too. <laughs> this has been like the leasing assignment that didn't really exist because it's always just full of uh, pallets. Yeah, we're going to build you space. We'll, the move, them. we'll, move, we'll move them somewhere. We'll move them somewhere. Let's get a lease. We'll move them somewhere. Oh, man. But, you know, obviously, uh, Bellevue in the last couple of years has done a lot of really interesting things. So we've got two questions for you to kind of wrap up. Where'd the name come from? It was, uh, I, I was uh, living on a street in Chicago called Bellevue Place. Okay. Um, my wife said that sounds like a nursing home. So <laughs> it I said, does. So I said, but I, I, but I like the idea of, of naming the company on the street where we lived when I started the company. Um, and um, so I, Bellevue Street, I changed the place to street. I'm super creative with names, clearly. It would have been Timber Glen for us. I don't, I don't like Timber Glen as much as Totem. But yeah. the street idea, I like it. Yeah. So the street you were on. All right, and what's your trade secret? Yeah, it's... Um, I've been trying to think of a good answer for this. So I would say we've touched on some of it, um, but I think we didn't really touch into the other things that Bellevue does, but I think the trade secret is bringing that institutional execution and thought process to the sub-institutional and then, but I'm, but everything I do has a partner. So it's bringing that and executing on behalf of my partner who maybe is local, knows, was bringing in the opportunities and because it's just me, you know, uh, you know, they get to work directly with me and there's a, just a bigger pie to share because there's fewer, you know, people to, to go around. But 
at the end of the day, the relationships really are the yeah. underpinning. The value street all. is entirely dependent on relationships. It, there is no value street without relationships. There's no totem yeah. without relationships. Yeah. yeah. So it's just being being a really good partner that people can rely on and execute and be trustworthy and and just do what you say you're going to do. Amen to that. Mm -hmm. True. I think yeah. that's a wrap. Um, we let's go didn't get warm. Do, well, let's go get warm. It like is shaking. chilly. Everybody's <laughs> shaking. Michael, are you going to Vanna White the, the Great well, actually, Lakes, which is really near and dear to me because really, this is... You, you should take this one. No, I mean, Great Lakes Brewing Company, fantastic. Cleveland, Ohio, Ohio City. Um, they make some of the best beer out there. I was pleasantly surprised to see that on the table today. Did not expect that. And I, I should mention that we shut off the HVAC units because they made too much noise. So it would normally be much warmer in here. Um, it's, it's always the same temperature. It's just, you know. Yeah. Hey, it's a great a, temperature for storing wine or beer. Or pallets or, of yeah. MRI equipment or yeah. dry dairy. It's just not great to sit in to film two Batteries. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, but they're, they're, there are offices here. There are people. Yeah. And it's not, uh, if you have office space built out here, it's. The offices are very comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, episode All 25 right. is in the books. Thanks, Alan, thanks, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank you. Our pleasure. All right. We'll see you next time. In a new office. Oh, yeah. New office. Woo, woo. Great. Right. Sweet. I am crazy.